this morning. Luke 21 is where we are at, verse 5. And as we approach the remainder of Luke 21, we've got a real challenging passage on our hands, and it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it. This is what uh, people call Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And they call it that because Jesus is, he is teaching his followers sitting on the side of the Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet. And we know that since Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple at the end of Luke 19, he's been teaching in the temple. And this has been going on for a couple of days, a day and a half or so. And at nighttime, he's going out and he's camping at the Mount of Olives. So in Luke 21, verse 37, Luke says, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. So we get to this point in Luke 21, uh, we are probably on the Wednesday of Holy Week. Jesus has finished teaching in the temple for the second day. He is headed back to the mount to, uh, to get a good night's rest. His, his work for the day is done. Matthew's account relays some more details about how Jesus gets into this teaching session with his disciples in Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So Jesus leaves the temple, and he sits down on the side of the Mount of Olives, and he starts to teach his disciples about destruction that is coming. He teaches them about the destruction of the temple that is coming, the destruction of Jerusalem that is coming, and then he teaches them about his return. And he does all of it from the side of Olivet, which means that as they sat on the side of this mountain and they listened to Jesus teach, below them would have been the sprawling map of Jerusalem, and they would have been looking down over the city as he talks about the city being destroyed, and they would have been looking at the temple as he talks about the temple being destroyed. Now the reason Jesus' Olivet Discourse can be so incredibly challenging is because it's apocalyptic in its nature, in its genre. Um, It's apocalyptic language from Jesus. If you've been with us in our Revelation series, which if you haven't, we've only had two messages so far, so you can go back and watch the live streams from uh, our last couple of Wednesday nights, catch up, and then be there this week. And I really encourage you to do that. But as we've been going through Revelation, one thing that we've picked up on already is that when there's Jewish apocalyptic literature, there's going to be a lot of symbols, there's going to be a lot of numbers, and a lot of things that can get people very excited. And those things can be hard to understand if you do not keep your Old Testament close by, uh, but we certainly are going to do that. It can also be uh, a very difficult passage to, uh, to comprehend because Jesus is kind of jumping all around uh, as he is going through his teaching in these verses. So in verses 5 through 9, we're going to see him describing the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And I think I have that on the screen, if we could pull it up, because I want everyone to see that outline. 
that structure. There we go. So verses 5 through 9 describes the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Verses 10 through 19, he starts to talk about the second coming and how things are going to be until he returns. Then he goes back in verses 20 through 24 to talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then he switches back to talking about his second coming in verses 25 through 28. And then in 29 through 38, he's just describing the way things are, are going to be until he returns and how his followers should deal with things until he returns. So he's jumping back and forth as you can see where he's like talking about things that are going to happen only about 40 years after his death and then he's talking about his return and then he's back to talking about things that are going to happen 40 years after his death and then back to talking about his return. And it can be a little bit confusing as you are trying to parse through it. Some people have tried to argue that this whole thing is not about the future uh, at all in terms of Jesus' return, that everything we're looking at in Luke 21, 5-38, is about the second coming. Um, and, and then there are other people that would say it's all about what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., I think it's about both. I think he's jumping back and forth, and the reason I believe he's jumping back and forth is this. He wants everyone to understand that what's going to happen with the temple and what's going to happen with Jerusalem in 70 AD is a preview of what's going to happen when he returns. And so he's saying there is impending judgment that is going to come down on this city, impending judgment that's going to come down upon that temple. And that judgment is going to come, we know from reading Peter's sermon in Acts 2, because of what the people in the city do to Jesus, and how they reject him, and how they turn him over to the Romans to be crucified, and how they murder the Messiah. And so judgment's going to come... But that judgment and, and those cataclysmic events in 70 AD give us a little picture of how things are going to look when he comes back. And so I think that's why Jesus is not just talking about the second coming. You're just talking about what's going to happen in 70 AD. He's going back and forth. He's saying the temple's going to be destroyed, and it's going to remind you when I come back. And then Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. It's going to be very reminiscent of what's going to happen when I come back. So... Um, it's a lot, but we're going to get through it over the next three weeks, and this morning we're just going verses 5 through 19, and as we do, Jesus has something to say to us about discerning the times and responding to the times. So let me read for us, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. 
Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So with the clues we get from Matthew 24, we can piece together how events are playing out in this passage. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus Uh, And his disciples are leaving the temple complex, just like Matthew said they were. And as they're leaving, some of Jesus' followers start pointing out how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus responds by telling them that the whole thing is going to be destroyed and not a single stone is going to be left undisturbed. Now, this would have been quite a jolt to the Jewish ear, okay? This would have been a stunning piece of news uh, to hear, and it would have been a piece of news that would have caused most Jewish people to object and say, no way. How could Jesus say this? How could he especially say this at Passover when all of the uh, Jewish people who are able are are flocking to Jerusalem uh, to, to celebrate according to the Lord's instructions? One of the most important seasons of worship for the Jewish faith. How could Jesus be saying this? When it came to Jewish worship, the temple held a very special place in the heart of Jewish faith. If you read through the Old Testament, it begins with the prototype for the temple, which was the tabernacle. For four centuries, the house of God in Israel was a tent. The tabernacle was designed and erected according to divine instructions that God gave to Moses from heaven. But it was not until the time of Solomon that there was a permanent temple that is built. But that permanent temple was not left alone for very long. Within five years of it being completed, it gets plundered. And then, 340 years after it is completed, the Babylonians come in and they raise the thing to the ground. R-A-Z-E, raise it to the ground, right? They destroy it. After that, you have Zerubbabel's temple. It's built after the return from Babylonian captivity. It stands for over 500 years. And then that leads us to Herod's temple. Herod took Zerubbabel's temple and he executed a massive renovation project. And he turned that temple into a wonder of the ancient world. It was decked out with all sorts of marble, all sorts of gold. It had multiple courtyards, multiple porticos. This was the temple that Jesus worshipped at in his life. This was the temple that Jesus chased the money changers out of on two different occasions, and this is the temple that's being talked about in verses 5 through 6. It is Zerubbabel's temple, which has been renovated by Herod. And this is the temple the Romans are ultimately going to destroy, just as Jesus promised in 70 AD. It's not the only time Jesus talked about the temple in such a way that made people uncomfortable. So in John 2... Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, which it really wasn't true. It took 46 years to renovate it. They're really, really sliding my boy Zerubbabel there, okay? Um, but will you raise it up in three days? They're like, all the work that's been done, 
right? All, all the marble, all, you're, you're going to destroy, this is going to be destroyed. You're going to raise it up in three days. You can see the objection immediately from the Jewish listeners, right? You're not touching the temple. Nobody's touching the temple. The temple is going to be fine. And they are flabbergasted at the idea that Jesus would even speak about the temple like this. They're astounded at the audacious claim that he would not only say that it would be destroyed, but that he could raise it up. And John tells us that they did not understand at all what he was saying. John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He, he wasn't even talking about the temple. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But this accusation that he was going to destroy the temple, this accusation followed him through his life. And so in Mark 14, as he is standing trial, Mark says this, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Well, A, it's not what he said at all. He's being misquoted, but he's also being misunderstood. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. And he's not saying that here. He's saying it will be destroyed. He's not claiming that he is going to be the one to destroy it. We know the Romans are the ones who will ultimately destroy it. And of course, we know that the Romans didn't do it in their own power, that they would not have been allowed to destroy it had God not um, you know, uh, opened up the way for them to be able to, right? The Babylonians were tools of God's judgment in his hand, and he used those tools in order to discipline his people and to judge his own people and send them off into captivity in 586 B.C. In the same way, the Romans in 70 A.D. would be tools of his judgment as he brought destruction down upon Jerusalem and upon Herod's temple. But still, even though we know that the Lord is behind it, Jesus never claims that he is going to personally destroy Herod's temple. But the delusional hearts of the sinful people around him did not understand his words, and they tried to twist them for their own gain. But when we get to Luke 21, verse 7, and his disciples say, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? I don't think that they are being uh, cynical as they ask that question. I don't think they're being underhanded. I, I think that they are sincerely asking for Jesus to clarify things. They don't have the heart of the Pharisee. They don't have the heart of the scribe or the Sadducee. They're not trying to catch him in some sort of um, predicament here with their question. They, they are honestly trying to understand how to discern the signs of the times. And they're going, Jesus, you're saying some things to us here that, uh, that are, are certainly causing some alarm bells to go off. Can, can you help us to understand these things? They don't want to discern the times wrongly. They're looking to Jesus for help. So he guides them. And he tells them in verse 8, to be careful that they are not led astray. Because many are going to come in his name saying that they are the Messiah, right? Saying, I am he. The time is at hand. And he says, don't go after them. This happened. Not long after Jesus' death, a man named Thutis came along and said he was going to liberate the Jewish people from Rome. And he claimed that he was going to come up to the Jordan River and he was going to lift up his hand and the Jordan River was going to part. And as in the days of Joshua, he and all of the Jewish people would go across the Jordan River on dry ground and they would escape the Romans. This did not happen. 
Ten years later, an Egyptian Jewish man came up and he led a giant movement for seven years from 52 AD to 59 AD. Again, not long after Jesus' death. And he convinced a bunch of people that the walls of Jerusalem were going to fall down and that he and his men would take Jerusalem back from Rome, Jericho style. And this also did not happen. And so Jesus is warning his disciples that as we get close to the destruction of the temple, there's going to be all these false teachers and these false messiahs trying to dupe people who are desperate for freedom from Rome. And he's saying, don't listen to them. Don't go after them. They're fake. They're counterfeits. They don't know what they're talking about. He wants them to listen to his words, right? Listen to me. Don't listen to them. He goes on to tell them that when they hear of impending war and conflict, don't be scared. Don't think it's the end of the world. Because the day of the Lord is not going to come until the temple falls. If the temple has not fallen, then the end has not yet come. And the reality is, is that even after the temple fell in 70 AD, the end did not come. The Romans destroyed the city. We'll talk more about that uh, next week. They destroyed the temple. They trapped the Jewish people in the city. They starved them out. It's absolutely horrific what they did to them. But it was all predicted by Jesus. The temple's destruction in verse 6, and next week we see him predicting the the, uh, destruction of Jerusalem. But as terrible as all this was going to be, it did not signal the end. Other events would come along that would tempt people to think it's near the end of the age. And he starts getting into this in verse 10. There's going to be nation rising against nation and kingdom rising up against kingdom. Of course, Jesus is referring to war. Wars always get people very, very excited and they think that the end is upon us because a war is taking place. Do you think that there were people in Europe in the fall of 1939, in the autumn of that year, who thought that the end times were upon us when the Nazis invaded Poland? Absolutely. You you can be sure those articles were being written. In fact, do you think that there were people in America who were watching uh, the Nazis invade Poland and thought that the end was near, or thought when Pearl Harbor happened that the end was near? Absolutely. In September of 2001, right after the September 11th attacks, There was all sorts of people saying that the end was upon us because of what had happened. I worked in a Christian bookstore from 2002 to 2004, and I watched those books be published, printed, and then when everybody realized it wasn't the end, I watched those books move to the clearance section for 99 cents apiece, and nobody was buying them, right? This is what happens. Wars come, people get really excited and go, this is it. But the reality is is that in the last 3,500 years of recorded human history, only 268 of them had no war in it. Think about that. War is about as constant as the air that we breathe. There's going to be a lot of wars. doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is about to return. He says there's going to be earthquakes and famine and pestilences in various places. So here Jesus is talking about natural disasters. About 50 years after Jesus is crucified and he resurrects and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, Vesuvius erupted and buries the city of Pompeii in ash. It was horrible. It's still talked about. It's taught in our our schools, right? It's in our textbooks. And as horrible as that was, 
And as apocalyptic as it looked, if you go back and you see uh, the people that were, were caught in live action in ash, right? You look at that and you're like, this looks like something out of a horror movie. It looks like something that would tell you the world is over. It didn't mean that the world was over. Every season of, uh, of uh, every hurricane season, right, we're threatened with bad storms around here. And thankfully, in the 10 years I've lived here, we haven't had one that's too bad, and hopefully we won't. But even if we do, it doesn't mean Jesus is about to come back. We just lived through a global pandemic. Scary and as frustrating as it was, doesn't necessarily mean the end is at hand. But when you take war and you take natural disasters and you add in some signs from heaven, it doesn't take a whole lot to get people sent into a panic, which brings us to our first teaching point this morning. Stay away from the panic of speculation. Stay away from the panic of speculation. This is what Jesus is telling us to do, and we need to listen to him. Don't get caught up in the speculation that tends to only lead to panic and hysteria. This stuff is still going on. Every now and then, some guy in his basement will make a video about how he had a dream that Jesus told him he's coming back on a certain date, and he makes this video, and it goes viral on YouTube, and everybody gets really excited about it. Is this it? Does this guy know? Jesus literally told us this guy doesn't know. We don't need to listen to the guy in his basement making YouTube videos, right? In May of 2011, people started selling their property and squandering their money because this guy, Harold Camping, told them that Jesus was coming back on May 21st, 2011. Harold Camping died in 2013. Jesus still had not come back. What happened to those people that sold all their stuff? Who knows? Listen, could Jesus come back at any moment? It's a really important question for us to ask. Could Jesus come back at any moment? And my answer to you is kind of, but not really. Okay? We do have scriptures warning us that Jesus' return is going to be sudden and it's going to be unexpected. Like in Matthew 24, uh, verse 42, when he says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So that is one of many examples we get where Jesus warns us that his coming will be like a thief in the night. You don't expect a thief in the night. And yet, Jesus also tells us about signs that are going to precede his return. So for example, before he comes back, in Mark 13.10, he says the gospel will be preached to all nations. He says in uh, Mark 13, a parallel passage to Luke 21, that as great as you think tribulation is in the world right now, that it's going to get even worse. In Mark 13, 80 says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. So the things that make people think Jesus is about to come back are actually signs that the really rough stuff is just getting started. He tells us in Mark 13, 22, there's going to be false prophets working signs and wonders. In Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24, he tells us there will be signs in, heaven, in the heavens. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul tells us there's going to be one final antichrist. In Romans 11, I believe that what you read there is there's going to be a great spiritual revival in ethnic Israel before Jesus returns. So yes, in a sense, Jesus could come back at any moment, but in reality it's unlikely because there's a lot of things that he's told us are going to happen that haven't happened yet, so we, we can cool our jets. You know what I mean? We can say, well, all of my interpretation of these things that he's told me could be wrong and he could come back at any moment, 
But, in reality, there's a lot of people who are interpreting these scriptures in this way, who are really smart, and what we're all kind of concluding together is, he could come back at any moment, but there's probably some things that need to happen before he does. So we should be careful then to avoid getting carried away with speculation that's more based on us trying to read the signs of the times than us listening to the word of God. The Lord has spoken. He's given us signals to look for that tell us when the end is near. And if he has specifically told us not to listen to people who tell us the sky is falling, then we should drown out the noise of their wild speculations and listen to the voice of the shepherd who looks at us and says, do not be terrified. This is what he says in verse 9. Do not be terrified. So don't be terrified. Let's keep going. In verse 12 and then in verses 16 and 17... Jesus goes from talking about the temple and the eventual end of the age to talking about what his followers can expect from the time leading up to his return. And it's not an easy picture to look at. Now, there's also promises in this, and we'll get to those in a moment. But before we do that, we've got to take a look at at the the painting that Jesus gives us here. It's tough of what life is going to be like for his people until he comes back. He warns us that before the end, they will lay their hands on us and they will persecute us. He tells us his people are going to be brought to the synagogue. You say, well, why would they be brought there? Because that's where the Pharisees were. So you bring them to the synagogue, accuse the followers of Jesus of blasphemy or accuse them of um, you know, being an insurrectionist against Rome or, or whatever, and then the Pharisees can take them and turn them over to the authorities. They'll be thrown into prison. They'll be dragged before kings and governments. He says all these things are going to happen, and you know what? They did happen. In Acts 4, Paul and, or Peter and John, they're arrested for preaching the gospel. In Acts 6-8, through Stephen gets dragged before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jewish elders. They stone him to death, and he is the first Christian martyr. He dies for his faith. But before they kill him, should be noted that he rips them apart with a wonderful history lesson and a fiery gospel presentation. So Stephen went out fighting for sure, but he was the first Christian martyr. So what Jesus says here, it came true, right? In Acts 24 through 26, you see Paul just on this tour where he's getting drugged uh, around and, 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 and thrown in front of all sorts of uh, governors and rulers. He goes from Felix to Festus to Agrippa. He's even slated to testify before Caesar himself. And then in verse 16, Jesus tells us the opposition is not just going to come from the authorities, that opposition will come from within families and friendships. That parents and brothers and relatives and friends will turn believers over to the authorities, and as a result, some of those listening to Jesus would even lose their lives. And again, we know that happened too, because 11 of the 12 apostles died for their faith. And the one who didn't, John, didn't exactly have an easy road. He suffered for the gospel. As we've just seen in our Revelation study, he got sent out to, it was basically like the Roman version of Alcatraz for a time because of his faith. So if you haven't figured it out from what Jesus is saying here, Jesus spells it out plainly in verse 17. You will be hated by all for my namesake. Christians will be hated by the world for how we identify with the name of Christ. So our second teaching point this morning, number two, settle in for the pain of suffering. Stay away from the panic of speculation, but settle in for the pain of suffering. As Christians, we're supposed to preach a message of forgiveness and love. 
right? We know there are believers who fail at this. We know there are churches who fail at this. But sometimes I think we can spend too much time harping on that. Look, nobody knows better than Southern Baptists in 2022 that abuse can happen and does happen in churches. Men and women fail us and they leave us hurt. They leave us disappointed, confused, bewildered. And then the world goes, see, look at those hypocrites. Nobody needs their religion. That's a narrative that's not made up. It's real. We should be meticulous in trying to preserve our witness so that doesn't become our story. But listen to me, for every story of heartbreak, there are stories of the heralded gospel transforming hearts and lives and communities. The world will rage about our hypocrisy, but rarely do they stop to talk about our justice. Our soup kitchens, our food pantries, our free prenatal care and Christian pregnancy centers. In fact, that has somehow become evil in the last two weeks. Our disaster relief mission work. The world will rage about our judgmental attitude that they see in some Christians on social media, and it's there, but they don't wax poetic about all the lost and lonely people that are, that are looking for some shred of hope, and today, today they're going to walk into gospel-preaching churches. Maybe it's one of you, and you're here right now in this church, and they're going to find hope and acceptance. They're going to find it at Seaford Baptist and Bethel Baptist and Coastal Church and all these faithful churches on the peninsula and all around the world. These down-and-out people are going to call churches this week, and they're going to ask for their outstanding utility bills to be paid, and those churches Churches are going to pay them purely out of love. There's going to be money poured in this month by churches all across this country into community outreach. I know we mess up, but by the grace of Christ, the church is amazing. It's amazing. And our message stands out in this world that is filled with all this bitterness and all this hatred. And it's a message of love, and it's a message of grace, and it's a message of a thousand second chances at the cross of Jesus. But do you know what? We still get hated. Doesn't make sense. There is no law against love. And so on the surface, you're going, why do they hate us like this? But by identifying with Christ, we identify with His truth and His values and His teaching. The world is still trapped in the depravity of their sin, and so they hate all of that because it confronts their hedonistic pursuit of self-pleasure. It gets in the way of a godless, autonomous existence. And so it's the sin in their hearts that leads them to suppress the truth and then oppose anybody who would disagree. So even though we're out here trying to preach this message of love and forgiveness, we're treated as if we preach a message of hate and rejection because the sin in people's lives has warped their minds and has warped their hearts to see the grace of Christ as hatred. It's a level of delusion you cannot debate and that you cannot argue with. The only thing that changes a heart where sin is sovereign is the Holy Spirit of God. And He will break through the darkness and He will open up spiritually blind eyes and He will show the glory of God in the face of Christ to people. But until they see, we have got to be prepared for the fact that their response to our gospel will often be one of vitriol and opposition. And our response back to them should be, love your neighbor as yourself, not to act the same way as them. Settle in. This is the way it's going to be till he comes back. But we get to our final teaching point, and the mood can come up a little bit. Stay away from the panic of speculation. Settle in for the pain of suffering. Lastly, stand on the promises of the Savior. 
Because as he's talking about how things are going to be until he returns, he gives us a real honest picture. And he's like, look, they're going to come against you, put you in prison, they're going to try to kill you. The opposition is going to come from people that you love even very dearly. But on the other side of it, he's giving us promises that find their yes in him. First of all, look at verse 13. Jesus' clan is going to suffer, right? But he says that our suffering is actually going to be an opportunity for us to bear witness. He even says in verses 14 and 15 that as his followers are dragged before the authorities, that they should resolve to not plan out what they're going to say, which by the way is really hard for me, because I love planning out what I'm going to say all the time. Uh, If I'm going to even have a conversation with somebody in my office, and I try to think about how that conversation might go, if I think it's going to be remotely confrontational, I'm like, well, I'll say this, and they'll say this, and I'll say this, and they say this, and it never actually pans out that way, right? He's saying, don't do this. Don't think, well, if they drag me in that synagogue, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say that. Don't, don't do that. You don't need to do that because he says he will give you a mouth filled with wisdom and he will give you the words to say. Really? Is he really going to do that? Absolutely. He did it. Peter and John, in Acts chapter 4, preach Christ and more than 5,000 people get saved. That sounds like a good day at church, right? And then the religious leaders are angry and arrest them and throw them into jail, and they end up getting brought before the rulers and the elders in Jerusalem. And what do they do? Well, they're witnesses, just as Jesus said they would be. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is scorching stuff, listen to this, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." I mean, he just brings out the gospel. He presents it clearly. He presents it strongly. He presents it in power. And you're saying, how could Peter, in the face of this opposition, I mean, these guys have the power to see him dead. How could he get up there and preach the gospel this boldly? Well, you go back and you see what Luke told us, right? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. It wasn't Peter. It was the Spirit. It was the Spirit's witness through Peter's mouth. And so you go back to Jesus' words in verses 14 and 15 when he says, don't meditate beforehand on what you're going to say. Rely on me to fill your mouth with wise words that none of your enemies are going to be able to contradict. He did it with Peter, right? He empowered Peter's witness. He spoke through him. He filled Peter's witness with his wise words. And if you read the passage, the enemies of the cross could not respond. They're confounded by the wisdom of Christ coming through his servant Peter. It's very reminiscent of Luke 20, verse 40. Remember when Jesus gets done teaching, responding to their questions where the Pharisees try to, uh, to, to catch him, the scribes, and, and then the Sadducees try to catch him. And then after he gets done, they're just like, for they no longer dared to ask him any question, is what Luke says, right? They all just said, we're not going to get this guy. Not this way. We're not going to outsmart him. We're not going to outfox him. It's not going to happen. Well, as the disciples of Jesus in our trials and tribulations, rely on the power of the Spirit to speak through us, through our mouths He will confound the so-called wisdom of man, just as He did with Peter, and just as He did in His own teaching ministry. 
And as if that promise is not enough, you go down to verses 18 and 19, and there's more promises for you. First of all, that not a hair on their heads will perish, which as a bald man, I love verse 18. I don't need any more hairs on my head to perish. You know what I mean? So I'm in. And they will gain their lives by endurance and perseverance. Jesus is not offering up some promise here in in all seriousness. He's not offering up some promise about how none of them are going to die. He just told them in verse 16 some of them are going to die. So that can't be what he's saying. It's not a promise about this life. It's a promise about eternal life. Matthew 10, 27 and 28. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The authorities might lay their hands on the church, might even take our physical lives, but they cannot touch the soul. And that's what Jesus means. You will not perish even if they kill you. Instead, if you endure, if you persevere, if you remain faithful, you gain your life. Hebrews 10.39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So in light of these verses, don't shrink back. Stand on the promises of the Savior. Things are going to get bad in the world. The temple coming down, wars, disasters, betrayals, they're just the birth pains, Jesus told us. That's just the labor pains. My wife had three. I've seen it play out, right? Those first, uh, I think we need to go to the hospital pains, are not as strong as the pains that happen later on. My wife tried to do the first one naturally, and she did for a very, very, very long time, and my son Beckett just couldn't get through. Poor dude came out with a flat head, and um, just, he just couldn't make it out, you know, and, and she tried and tried, and finally they had to get the epidural for her. But right before they got it, me and, and, and her mom were standing there, and I was going to leave. I thought, I'm going to let her mom come in and be mom right now. And, and as they were about to get that needle out, I went to back away, and she grabbed my hand, and she said, you're not leaving, just like that. And I was like, all right, stay right here. So, um, and, uh, and so I've seen those labor pains. I've never felt them. Uh, a lot of you in this room have. What happens as you get closer to that baby coming out, is a, it, it's a lot more intense than what's happening when you're just at the house about to leave. Folks, the world has more gears of depravity to shift into, and I know that's scary, but they're going to. They're going to shift, and they're going to shift, and they're going to shift until the justice of God appears on a white horse and he ends evil for good. But remember what he has said. They cannot take our lives, and he will give us the words to say, and our suffering will be an opportunity for witness. And if we hold on to the one who is holding on to us, our perseverance will be a proof of our salvation, a proof of eternal life, a gained life. So don't panic. Even when the broken world brings pain and suffering right to your door, don't panic because the promises of Christ are always true. Stand on them and be a witness for the sake of his worthy name. The band's going to come back up right now and lead us in a final song this morning. And um, as they do, I want to say a couple things to you. One, if, um, if, if you are just like kind of beaten down and you feel tired, because you feel like all you see is, is speculative panic. Every time you turn on your TV, there's people panic and people speculating. There, there's a different way for you to live. 
You don't have to turn your TV on every day and subject yourself to that stuff. You really don't. Um, You have a Bible that you can open. Open your Bible more and listen to the words of Jesus more. Don't get caught up in all of the panic and all of the hysteria. Get caught up in the words of truth that can guide you through this age and tell you exactly what we should do, how we should act, and also what to expect. So I really want to encourage you that like, if you feel angsty because the narrative of the day is just constantly frustrating you, making you feel like things are so unstable, all that might be true, but you do not have to constantly feel that way. Like, like The Lord has not redeemed you for angst. He has redeemed you for peace. And so if you're feeling angsty all the time, you're probably approaching discerning the times in the wrong way. Anchor yourself to His Word and not the words of the world, whatever they believe. Because out in the world, there are unbelievers who are conservatives, there are unbelievers who are liberals, there's unbelievers who are all over that spectrum, extreme, moderate, everywhere. But an unbeliever is an unbeliever, working with the wisdom of the world, whether they agree with you about political ideology or not. Don't let these people unsettle you. Cling to the word of Christ and find peace. He has redeemed you to have peace in your soul. And then secondly, I want to say to you, if you don't know Jesus and these times scare you, look in this passage and see that the only peace found in in this passage comes from being able to rest on his promises. And if you don't know Jesus, those promises aren't yours yet. So you need to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ this morning. You need to confess your sins to God. Bring it all out into the light before God and say, this is who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm completely unable to save myself. And tell him that you trust him. You trust that when Jesus died for your sin, that it really was atoned for, that when Jesus rose from the grave, he really did defeat your sin and death. And so turn away from your sin. Turn toward Christ in faith. Trust in Christ. And then these promises That even though you might be killed, you will live. These promises that he will give you the words to say in those times of opposition, then they belong to you because all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And you are in Jesus. And so, today is the day of salvation. And if you would like to know more about being in a relationship with Christ, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, After the service, myself or Pastor Ben would love to speak with you. Um, our deacons, if you raise your hand if you're a deacon in this room right now, um, these are our deacons. They would love to be able to talk to you about how to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior so you could seek them out and just say, hey, how do I become a Christian if maybe you're friends with one of them? But um, today is the day of salvation. And you can also send us an, an email or a text at connect at seafordbaptist.com and we will absolutely get right back in touch with you to talk to you about these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we sing. Father, I thank you for um, just the fact that, that your son, in the midst of his honesty about the way things are, Lord, your, your word doesn't try to, to, to sugarcoat things. It, it tells us the plain truth about the way this world is. But he makes it so clear to his disciples as they're sitting on the side of that mountain, and he makes it so clear to us sitting in this room this morning that uh, we are not alone in this. We are not alone. Not only do we have one another, much, much more importantly, Lord, we have you. We have you, and your spirit is with us. You have not left us alone in this world. Even though the world hates us, we have not been left alone. And so uh, we thank you for that, God. We worship you from that place of, of thanksgiving right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.